This is the 556th edition of Charlottesville Community Engagement, a newsletter and podcast that attempts to keep an eye out on a great many things with the hope of explaining how things get built. I'm Sean Tubbs, a journalist who has covered the topics of land use, growth, and development in the Charlottesville area for many years. Often this newsletter covers three to six different stories, but today's installment tries to break down one big document that will be very important to the future of the city's built environment. On today's program, a complete version of Charlottesville's development code is out for review, including the zoning ordinance. The Planning Commission is expected to hold the first public hearing on Thursday, September 14th. Before that, there's a work session on August 29th. The final draft of the zoning code still would allow up to 12 residential units in Residential B, but the maximum for Residential C would also be a dozen down from 16. Details on how affordability would be managed are still pending release of an administrative manual. And there's a new zoning map, and I'm interested to know where you see changes. In today's first Patreon-fueled shout-out, the temperature gauge and humidity still say summer, but increased activity at area schools clearly indicates fall is approaching. Friends of downtown Seaville are thinking ahead to activities on the downtown mall as the nights grow longer and longer. Here is some of what to expect. Mark your calendar for September 8th and the Coca-Cola Block Party. There's a membership drive coming up on September 22nd for those who want to get involved with all of the happenings on the mall this fall. Doggy Howl Oween and the downtown safe Halloween are just over two and a half months away, and it's not too early to think about the holidays and magic on the mall coming up Thanksgiving through Christmas. Stay tuned for more information, and thanks to Friends of Downtown Seaville for their support of Charlottesville Community Engagement through Patreon. A 443-page consolidated draft of Charlottesville's proposed development code is now ready for review, a month before the first public hearing is to be held on whether to advance it on to City Council or request further updates. The draft was originally intended to be published the week of July 24th, but Neighborhood Development Services Director James Fries told me the city wanted to make sure they were ready before proceeding. For the first time, the draft is a complete document that does not refer to documents that don't yet exist, except for one. Reading the modules to date has been like reading parts of a play. Now there is an almost full structure for everyone to read as a whole, almost, to see how they think it all comes together. This particular newsletter assumes a general knowledge of planning terms. However, if there is something you are not familiar with, please drop me a line. Ask me a question. I disclose that I am a property owner in the city, but this work is intended to inform and educate and not to persuade. All I want is for as many people as possible to know how these draft rules will work. All of the materials can be accessed via the Seville Plans Together draft zoning site, including a list of changes made since the modules were introduced earlier this year. The following is my own summary. Worth noting is a final version of the Purpose and Intent section, labeled 1.1.3, which provides all the reasons why the development code is being put in place to promote the health and safety and general welfare of the public. 
there are 12 descriptions of what the zoning code is to be used for, including reduce or prevent congestion in the public streets and facilitate the creation of a convenient, attractive, and harmonious community. But there's also a directive to follow the comprehensive plan and its components, including the affordable housing plan. That was the first part of the overall SIVA Plans Together initiative, and the comprehensive plan was the second. Here are two more of those 12 descriptions. Promote the creation and preservation of affordable housing suitable for meeting the current and future needs of the city, as well as a reasonable proportion of the current and future needs of the region within which the city is situated. And promote a full range of housing choices and encourage the construction and continued existence of moderately priced housing by providing for optional increases in density in order to reduce land cost for such moderately priced housing. So that's the why. Everyone is perhaps more concerned with the how and the other basic questions. There are no deletions or additions to the number of zoning districts under this new finalized draft code, but the word overlay has been deleted from the official title of each overlay district. This seems like a wordsmithing issue. A point of the Seville Plans Together initiative was to make planning documents more readable to the average community member. Section 2.1.1 describes how the development code is to be used. Here's a section from the how-to on district pages. Each zoning district is formatted on a set of district pages, identifying the standards specific to each zoning district. The pages are formatted as a set of graphics and tables, starting with lot standards on the first page and building standards on the second page. New to each district page is a section that provides a summary of the purpose for the particular district. The one for residential districts describes the overall goal. A walkable neighborhood environment intended to accommodate a variety of housing options, including single-unit homes, duplexes, triplexes, fourplexes, townhouses, and small apartments in general residential and medium-intensity residential areas designated in the comprehensive plan, supporting and within walking distance of neighborhood-serving retail, food, and service uses. Before we get into the new specifics for what comes in each district, a note that there is a new section for alternative forms for commercial uses. More on that in a moment, but it's worth keeping in mind. There appear to be only slight changes in what's allowed in the draft zoning from what was released in early February. Residential A would allow for three units and would have a minimum lot size of 6,000 square feet. An additional dwelling unit would be allowed if an existing structure is preserved. There could be a maximum of six units if the affordable bonus is invoked. According to section 4.2.2.C.3.A, only those three additional units would need to be affordable. The more dwelling units, the more land could be taken up, but there is a maximum building footprint in residential A of 3,000 square feet. There is no longer a significant bonus height allowance for more units in RA. The range is from 32 feet for up to two units to 35 feet for three to six. Residential B would have a minimum lot size of 2,500 square feet. One new element in this draft allows for a bonus of up to eight units if an existing structure is retained as part of a redevelopment. The bonus, total bonus, for affordable units is 12, meaning six units would have to be designated as affordable. The maximum building footprint on a lot in residential B is 3,500 square feet. The minimum setback would be 10 feet from the lot line. Residential C would also have a minimum lot size of 2,500 square feet. There is no provision for a bonus for retaining an existing structure in Residential C. 
The base density would be eight, with up to 12 if the affordable bonus kicks in. That means four affordable units. The maximum building footprint would be 4,000 square feet. Residential C would also have no bonus provision for additional height, which would be capped at 35 feet. Limited small-scale commercial uses would be allowed in all three of these residential categories with varying degrees based on letter. More on that in a moment. The summary for the two residential mixed-use districts takes the exact language of 2.2.1 and adds this sentence. Residential mixed-use, or RX, districts allow for some neighborhood-serving commercial uses that are limited in scale and extent. Something to note here is that there are no minimum lot sizes. There is a 40-foot width requirement, however. There would be no limit on residential density, and buildings could cover 80% of the total lot. The base height allowed for RX3 would be a maximum of 44 feet, up to a maximum of 72 feet with bonus provisions for affordability. Ground story height would be 10 feet, but 35% of the frontage on the primary street would need to have windows. RX5 would have a height range of 72 feet for the base and 100 feet with the bonus provision. The other zoning districts also have summaries. Here's the one for corridor mixed use in 2.4.1. Moderate and higher intensity mixed use office and residential buildings intended to accommodate a variety of residential, retail, service, and commercial uses in a vibrant pedestrian-friendly environment along neighborhood and urban mixed use corridors as designated in the comprehensive plan. This general district eliminates ones specialized in the previous 2003 rezoning. The CX3, CX5, and CX8 have similar parameters as the ones for residential mixed use. CX would allow a base of 8 stories or 114 feet by right with 10 stories or 142 feet by right with the bonus provision. Then there are the node mixed use districts which are declarative in their intention as seen in section 2.5.1. Uses are flexible but tall ground floors with large areas of transparent glazing are required to accommodate retail ready ground stories. Although buildings are allowed to be exclusively residential or non-residential in use, the vertical mixing of uses is strongly encouraged. The parameters are the same as the other mixed-use districts, but NX10 would allow 142 feet as a base height and 170 feet if bonus conditions are factored in. That's 10 or 12 stories. Would there be a race for who could build the tallest building in Charlottesville? I bet there will be. The downtown node would base height on a map that is another new element of the zoning code. This map would leave decisions up to the Board of Architectural Review. Jump ahead to section 2.10.9 if you want the details on building height. Then there are the industrial flex zones. Here is a section from 2.6.1. Primarily intended to accommodate a variety of light industrial and manufacturing uses in business and technology mixed-use areas designated in the comprehensive plan, while also allowing for retail, service, and commercial activity and residential opportunities to create more pedestrian-friendly environments. There would be no limit on residential uses in these industrial zones. There are new special districts called Campus and Civic, which carry on from the draft. Dwelling units are not allowed in the Civic District. Back to alternate forms. This also has a summary of districts entry. 
There are certain cases where the desired physical form for a specific type of allowed use is different from the predominant physical form allowed by the zoning district. Alternative forms provide a set of standards and rules that allow for a physical form appropriate to those allowed uses. This is where the shopfront house comes in as the first possible alternative form. This alternate form intends to improve the walkability of residential neighborhoods, provide surrounding residents with amenities within a convenient distance of their homes, and support community-oriented small businesses development. New structures built in these sections would be allowed to take up 80% of the lot, which would be set by the underlying district. Minimum setbacks would be five feet from the lot line. There was also the Civic Institution Alternative Form and Park Alternative Form. The new draft also appears to have eliminated specific references to the streets that work plan adopted in sometime in the mid-2010s. These are all crossed out in section 2.10.1.b, which is in the overall rules for zoning's districts section. The placement and orientation of a building would depend on what roadway is considered the primary street. There are a lot of details in this section, such as a requirement that there be six feet of exposed building facade above the top of a ground floor. There are rules for how height would be measured. Each subsection goes into further detail about commonly used terms such as lots, density, building coverage, building footprint, outdoor amenity space, and many more. In each, there are common themes in the intent section, which reflect language in the development code's purpose and intent that you heard about 10 minutes ago. The section on building setbacks, 2.10.5, is intended to facilitate the creation of a convenient, attractive, and harmonious community by providing open areas on a lot and help reduce the impact of buildings or structures on abutting sidewalks and neighboring development. This section will become important in a community that will likely have a lot more redevelopment on streets where existing buildings could still be standing for decades to come. There are provisions for how the minimum and maximum setbacks in the code could be modified. This will likely leave a lot up to the administrator for interpretation. Section 5.1.6 of the Development Code designates the Director of Neighborhood Development Services as the administrator. While the second article of the chapter takes a look at the form of new buildings, the third article focuses on uses allowed in all of the zoning districts. This begins on page 163 of the overall document. In the table, P is a use that's allowed by right. P with an asterisk indicates the use is allowed by right as long as certain standards are met. S is used to refer to a use that is allowed after a special use permit is granted legislatively by the city council. S with an asterisk requires a special use permit as well as standards. Permits could be revoked if ordered by council because of the failure of the owner or operator of the use allowed by the SUP to observe all conditions and requirements with respect to the maintenance and conduct of the use. This would also require a public hearing. Some changes in this draft as opposed to the module. Manufactured home parks could be built in Residential B with a special use permit with standards. Homestays would only be allowed in RB and RC. Residential treatment facilities for up to eight people could be built by right with standards in all five residential districts. A special use permit would be required for more than eight people in RA, RB, and RC districts, but would be by right with standards in RX3 and RX5. 
Private clubs would be allowed with special use permits with standards in RB and higher, but not allowed at all in RA areas. Special use permits with standards would be required for general food and beverage up to 4,000 square feet in RA, RB, and RC areas, and by right in everything higher. There would be no provision for anything larger in any of the five residential zones. Alcohol sales for on-premise consumption would be a by-right use with standards in all zoning districts except civic. That includes all five of the residential districts. The same applies for outdoor dining. No breweries or micro-producers would be allowed in any of the five residential zones. General medical, up to 4,000 square feet, would be allowed in RA, RB, and RC with a special use permit. Same with general office, general personal service, gym or studio, and general retail. If you want a helipad, you have to be zoned campus, and you'll need a special use permit as well. And finally for this section, solar energy systems would be an allowed by right use with standards. Further definitions as well as details on standards are covered in Division 3.3. Let's take a quick break so I can do another shout out. You're listening to Charlottesville Community Engagement, and in today's second Patreon-fueled shout-out, architectural firm Design Develop wants you to know about a new service aimed at the development community that may not be widely known just yet, 3D point cloud scanning. That's a technique that uses specialized equipment, such as 3D scanner systems, to gather a large amount of data points that represent the surface of the scanned object or scene. The applications of 3D point cloud scanning are extensive and cover various fields, including architecture, construction, cultural heritage preservation, virtual reality, industrial design, manufacturing, and more. These applications require accurate 3D spatial information, and Design Develops workflow provides precise and comprehensive results, all while being more cost-effective than traditional methods. Design Develop has expertise in this workflow for their own needs, and now has a dedicated team that offers this service in the Albemarle and Charlottesville area. If you're involved in the real estate, design, or construction industry, feel free to contact Design Develop for more information or free quote. Visit their website for an introductory video that captures the three-point cloud scanning of the Downtown Transit Center, as well as a booklet that will explain more. Thank you to Design Develop for the Patreon-fueled shout-out. We have now arrived at the third act of this newsletter on the Draft Development Code, which covers development standards. This section has further details on the rules for getting bonus units for preserving existing structures and rules for affordable housing. Much of this language remains intact from the draft modules, and here's some of what's in there. 
any residential project over 10 units will implement the affordable housing goals of the adopted comprehensive plan and Charlottesville affordable housing plan. Affordable units must be income restricted for 99 years, but new language would allow the administrator to accept modifications to those requirements if the affordable dwelling unit monitoring and procedures manual is followed. That document is not yet available for review. All affordable units would be subject to an annual monitoring requirement. There is still a provision for a developer to pay into a fund rather than build the units, also the manual. The development code would require that one in three units must be made available to a household receiving a housing voucher or other rental assistance program. Affordability in RA, RB, and RC districts would be targeted at households making 60% or less of the area median income. Affordability requirements drop to 50% of AMI for the other residential districts. There's a lot of new language for the sections on site access in streets. Language requiring streetscape standards remains intact from the drafts. There are provisions that would allow for new structures to match existing streetscapes. There's a lot of detail here that will come up a lot in the future. The final draft does not include any requirement for parking. However, if a parking lot is built with more than six spaces, 20% of them must have electricity provided to them for the purposes of charging vehicles. Division 4.7 includes provisions for transitions and screening between lots of different zoning districts. Division 4.9 covers tree preservation and replacement, removal of any tree over eight inches of diameter at breast height, requires a permit that's governed by 5.2.10. This does not apply to dead, dying, or hazardous trees. Division 4.11 covers signs, and there are a lot of descriptions for those who want to know the details. Article 5 covers administration and who has the final say in any particular situation. City Council would continue to make the final decisions on comprehensive plan adoptions and amendments, as well as zoning text amendments and zoning map amendments. These would require public hearings. The Planning Commission would make the decision on any review of public facilities, and Council would be the body to which appeals would be made. The Zoning Administrator would make the decision on minor preservation and design historic reviews as well as corridor review. The Board of Architectural Review would be the appeal body for the former, and the Planning Commission would be the appeal body for the latter, though Council would also get a say if an outcome was appealed to them as well. The BAR would make the decision on major preservation and design historic reviews, and Council would be the appeal body. The administrator would make the decisions on permits for tree removal, floodplain construction, sign placement, and temporary use permits. The Board of Zoning Appeals would hear official requests for a second opinion. The new development code appears to eliminate all of the specifics and details for public notice requirements from the code directly. Instead, there is a general reference to the Code of Virginia Section 15.2-2204 and a reference to the city's Development Review Administration Manual. That latter document is 21 pages long and the details you're looking for about public notice are on page 16. This will certainly not be the last newsletter on the new development ordinance, and I repeat again that I am interested in your questions. This newsletter does not cover any specific changes to the zoning map, but future ones might. 
I'm also hoping to interview people about what they think about the zoning. would like to further experiment with how to get that information out to you because there are many differing opinions about what's contained in the development ordinance and opinions on how we got here. My hope is to help make the conversation more productive using the skills I have. After all, I'm pretty sure that's what my paying subscribers want me to do, and I thank all of you for listening to this point. Hooray! But that is the end of this particular installment, number 566. And additions like this installment are the main reason for Charlottesville community engagement. I've always thought there was room in the journalistic marketplace for work that seeks to explain and provide context. I worked for so many agencies in the past that are just simply not interested in process. Over 500 of you are interested on process at the local level because you've opted to open up your wallet and commit financially to this endeavor, either through Substack or through Patreon. I've been in this iteration of my career for three years now, and I genuinely want to see how all of it's going to turn out. Thank you to all of those of you who have paid for my time, and thanks to all of those who will in the future. I don't believe in begging any of you for money or selling the scarcity of this work. My business model is pretty simple. Produce high-quality content, and the number of paid subscribers will increase. And if you opt to pay through Substack, Ting will match your initial subscription. There is information in the newsletter that you can read for this. We are out of time. Go look at that map and tell me what you see. (laughs) 